0: Hey there everyone, from beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, halfway between Cheyenne and Denver, and 5,003 feet above sea level, I'm Jeff Haber, and you're listening to No Bed of Roses.
1: No Bed of Roses is brought to you by Conexus. Maybe your company is creating video content, or you're a brand looking for that coveted direct connection with viewers. Maybe you're an established YouTube creator, or you're just starting out. Conexus Interactive Web Video Solutions enables viewers, while watching your videos, to simply tap on the items they're interested in, directly connecting them to the merchant's shopping cart to easily purchase those items. This all happens without ever leaving the video experience and without ever leaving the site where they started watching the video in the first place. Conexus shoppable video content works using any browser on any device. No download, no plugin, nothing to install. Interactive video like you've always wanted it. Find out more at Conexus.com. That's K-E-N-X-U-S dot com.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Francis Batista, co-founder and current chairman of Best Friends Animal Society, a wonderful organization. If you don't know about it, you are in for a treat. If you do know about it, you're still in for a treat. Obviously lots of challenges with what's been going on for so many people and their animal friends through the pandemic. And Francis touches on how best friends stayed agile through it all, and also talks some about the origin story, which is fascinating. So without any further delay, here's Francis. This has been obviously for you, for everyone else, for the animals, a pretty challenging year, I would assume.
2: Well, it has been, but it's also been a really interesting and exciting year because it's required a lot of innovation and a lot of, I think the term of art that became sort of almost a cliche was pivoting. Everybody was pivoting uh, because of the, uh, the changes in the way we do work and the way we do our business and the way we have to, uh, you know, the goals don't change, the life-saving needs don't change, but the the entire playing field changed. That required an adaption on the fly. It really was a matter of building the airplane while you're flying it. So it was pretty cool.
0: That's something, building the airplane while you're flying it, is something that I think you're, you're really used to, Francis, knowing you for as long as I do.
2: Well, yes, um, we've always had that... Comp- <laughs> I don't know how to take that. A lot of the airplanes we were flying together were sort of never quite finally put together. They, they did. We did manage to bring them in for landings, but sometimes with with a, with a gear up or something like that. My role is a lot different than it, it, it has been over the years. So, you know, I'm not in operations uh, with Best Friends Animal Society as I was. I'm a chairman of the board and I do a lot of internal consulting and, and working with a team in an advisory capacity, mostly from the point of view of, yeah, well, we've been there, done that, or we the last time we were here, we turned left rather than right, and here's the reason we turned left rather than right. But what happened this year was, um, it was really on our leadership team, mainly Julie Castle, our CEO, and uh, her crew to just make these really, really dramatic adjustments. And so for you, I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of the things that are going on, but for folks who aren't, it was really a matter of, you know, the, the, the normal routine of, of animal welfare and in our particular quadrant of it, which was ending, you know, our mission is to end shelter killing, to end the killing of healthy and treatable pets in shelters. Save them all. Save them all. The protocols for that have been, you know, fairly well laid down. It's not rocket science. You're just really working to build safety nets, to create more adoptions, to create Build more fostering, provide more resources into the community. Most of it was all centered around brick and mortar operations, you know, because that's where the animals were. A lot of it was involved in driving traffic to the shelters. You know, we have this term noses in, noses out, preventing the noses from going into the shelter and increasing the number of noses coming out of the shelter. All of that changed when COVID hit. A lot of the shelters had to close. And, you know, one of the things we, the team first did was to. Make sure to petition uh, and advocate that animal shelters and animal shelter workers were essential workers, that this was something that needed to happen because of the the need there.
0: I can't say I've heard noses in, noses out. Is that a t-shirt yet? Because if it ain't, it ought to be. (laughs) It, It ought to be. How were you received with that petition to get shelter workers categorized as essential? How did that go?
2: It went well. It went very well, and it went well from the perspective that this is a vital function of a community to care for pets. But also, that didn't change the fact that it restricted the public. And you have to have, you have animals in shelters, they have to be fed, they have to be cared for. The limitations and restrictions that came in were how much public access you could have. So a lot of the shelters really were closed to the public. So how do you go about doing pet adoptions if people can't come in and meet the animals. How do you do, you know, all, all of the different things that uh, if you can imagine what a, a, a city shelter or community animal services operation looks like, it's all very people oriented, people focused. You have people coming into the shelter. you have people adopting, you have people surrendering animals, you have all sorts of things going on that involve person-to-person contact. And then, of course, you have the whole veterinary side of things with people having to to take animals to the vet that they could no longer do. So there was, you know, televeterinary medicine became a thing. But what really happened is something that should have been happening all along. And, you know, one of the things we've known for a very long time, and this is wisdom from one of our uh, movement mentors, a guy by the name of Rich Abenzino, who uh, was the head of San Francisco SPCA and then became the head of Maddie's Fund, had this saying, you know, look, the more animals are in shelters, the more animals die. So the the idea is keep animals out of the shelter. The public is not the problem. The public is the solution. The public is the answer. We need to trust the public to be the solution to this issue, as opposed to the attitudes that had built up over the years about, you know, it's the public that's the problem. You know, the shelter's in the problem. The public is the problem. So says, rich
0: Rich's thinking was radical at the time, Francis?
2: Rich's rich thinking was radical and has been radical up until the tragedy of COVID created the circumstances that proved him right. What happened is that in order to actually function, we had to recruit more of the public to be foster homes. We had to recruit more of the public to be part of the the safety net for animals, to undertake neighbor-to-neighbor adoptions, to provide for their own neighbors, people who were particularly vulnerable, to do pet walking, to have pet food banks, to kind of, so all of these things that are normally associated with brick-and-mortar operations, not all of them, but a, a big chunk of them, were pushed out into the community.
0: Almost crowdsourced.
2: Well, crowdsourced and the, yeah, exactly. And also the idea that, you know, the community, the best safety net for the animals is a pet loving community. And so how do you mobilize that? And and, and as as always, the public was, you know, way ahead. And so there was an immediate response to and willingness to step into this role. So uh, multiplied by the fact, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of this, that A lot of people were stuck at home and adopted pets as companions.
0: We're one of those long. We have Malibu, our 10-month-old COVID pup. The
2: thing is, well, what happens when COVID's over? Well, don't worry. Put a pet with a family and the pet will do the rest. That relationship and that bond is very powerful. This idea, and it's an idea that Best Friends has been pushing for a very long time as well, the idea that really where we want to see sheltering go to is that the shelter, rather than being the kind of place that we've come to expect it to be where animals are housed and in stressful environments and and a lot of them are put down and, you know, all of that kind of thing. The shelter should be a community resource center where the administration of the work is really to help the community better care for their pets and to push more of the animals that would otherwise be in the shelter out to the community as fosters and adoptions and, uh, and the like. So what we saw over the past year was actually a dramatic reduction in shelter killing as a result of this. And is again, simply the simple fact is what Rich back in, you know, however many years ago, well over 30 years ago, said the more animals in shelters, the more animals die. We need to keep animals out of the shelters. We need to keep uh, animals in the in the community, and have the community be the the resource for it.
0: Three decades later, it takes a pandemic, a global pandemic, but it proves
2: up. It does. And also something that's facilitated that is, of course, all the tech that's now available. Apps, people are able to connect with each other very easily. They're able to provide fine support. They're able to find other adopters. They're able to use these TeleVet applications to be able to get with the veterinarian via an app. Technology has been a tremendous asset in all of this as well. On top of the tremendous need that was created by the demands of the pandemic, there was this infusion of technology and an uptake of technological tools to be able to facilitate this. The whole thing has been at once incredibly challenging because we have, for the organization, we have staff who are now, their job description has changed dramatically. And for a lot of people who are located in cities, we have operations in Los Angeles, operations in Salt Lake, operations in New York and Atlanta. And in places like New York, they were on lockdown for a lot of big chunk of that time so they couldn't even go into their into their facility the facility itself that we have in Soho, a beautiful setup there, was closed. How do you do that work that you were doing out of a cool walk-up and high-traffic area to now in a method that meets and matches the needs without having that facility and without having people on the ground handling the animals? And so all of those things had to be worked out, and each one of them in each community is different. For example, up in uh, Salt Lake, they they had goals. Every year, we we always have a goal, we're gonna adopt out more animals this year than last year. But right now, because they didn't have that same dynamic, They keyed their metrics and their goals not to what they did in the past, but to what the shelter and what the community needed. So they were doing drive-up adoptions, video meet-and-greets, and and a lot more video vignettes of the animals. In Los Angeles, where there's a huge kitten problem, there's also an injunction that prevents TNR, which is a trap-neuter return, which is a a management tool for community cats. That's been prohibited by an injunction that was filed years ago, but it's now changing. But in any event, the limitations on that mean that there are thousands upon thousands of kittens that enter the shelter. And most of them are you know, under eight weeks old. And if they were to just simply go into the shelter, they don't have the resources to bottle feed them and take care of them. So most of those animals were being killed. So, for example, when we started uh, the No Kill Los Angeles Coalition, NKLA, there were 23,000 animals that was our baseline the year prior that were being killed in Los Angeles.
0: A majority, animals, what proportion? Kittens, cats, dogs, puppies?
2: 7,000 of those were kittens under eight weeks old. Animals that were, if you just can see them along for two or three weeks, they become the cutest, most adoptable, adorable animals in the shelter. They fly off the shelves, but they were being killed because the shelters didn't have the resources to care for them in-house, They're very vulnerable to disease and susceptible to any of the things that are flying around the shelter. And they didn't have the the foster networks to move them through. So first year we did this, or or over the past few years when we were building this, we had this huge kitten nursery operation in-house, where it was like the entire operation was turning over kittens. And then we had foster families coming in, 24-7 operation with people bottle-feeding neonatal kittens down the corridors in this room, that room, and everywhere. The whole place was just jam-packed with kittens. This year, that was all pushed out to volunteers and to homes with support from the team. Rather than having animals go into even our operation, they just went straight into foster care. And then in doing adoptions, they would do what we call drive-by adoptions. It was all kind of organized and, you know, it was all set up with whatever tech methodology they, they needed to do. All of these things are transformative and they will have legs because they have changed the way work is being done. They've saved many, many more lives.
0: Any negatives out of it, Francis?
2: The negatives out of this situation generally is going to be the tail end of this. What happens if you know, 30 or 40 million people lose are evicted with their pets. So low cost, affordable, low, you know, affordable pet inclusive housing is a big problem and a big issue that's may or may not hopefully it will be cut off by appropriate actions by Congress. But who knows? That's a concern that's looming. The other thing has been also, you know, we have 800 staff around the country. As I was saying, their job profile has changed. And for a lot of people, that meant changed dramatically from being a kennel worker, an animal caregiver, a direct hands-on person in one of our regional centers relating to the public, an adoption coordinator, greeting people at the door. So all of that and those roles have changed. And so there's a big emphasis on how do we make all of this work for our staff without lowering performance expectations for the animals and also How do we provide security future for staff whose jobs are in complete flux? So that has been a major challenge. and The teams, particularly as I said, Julie Castle, our uh, CEO, just handled this amazingly well. So we didn't go through any layoffs. Her and her team figured out how to reorganize our work and our operations to sustain our team, readjust work descriptions and job descriptions and if people were said, well, look, you know, this isn't what I kind of signed up for. I really wanted to be doing this kind of work. I appreciate the opportunity. By the end of the year, October and running through December, people who were unhappy or un- didn't feel they were really qualified or didn't fit their anticipated role with animals, they were given a voluntary uh, separation package if they wanted. It was incredibly generous and provided, you know, extended insurance and various other things and a separation package based on however many years they've been working. So it was all incredibly positive. No loss of confidence with the team. There was, in fact, an incredible boost of confidence and a spree throughout the organization because of the way it was handled and because of the support and commitment that was made to all of the staff and to the animals thing. But there's it obviously challenges, incredibly stressful, but they handled it very, very well. We're still at the tail end of it, but we've kind of made it through that big uh, hump and we are looking forward to the next year. We don't know how it's going to be. Hopefully it will be better.
0: It's inspiring on so many levels because it w- it all unraveled so quickly and then into the spring in, in March when it really hit for so many across the country but that they were able to be so dynamic so proactive and 800 staff the care that i know is emblematic of of best friends was was widespread not just for the animals but of course for for the people
2: even though the facilities and the operations they were working in changed dramatically and in some cases were shut down for the entire time. And just the whole thing has so dramatically changed. You know, the customer base, the animals, has not changed. The work been had to be reconfigured. That had so many moments of excitement and celebration and collective congratulations to people that it really continued to maintain this esprit. You know, when we had people who were potentially sitting on their hands from whatever level, we said, okay, well, look, let's call our membership, check in on them, make sure they're okay. We're not going to ask them for money. We're not going to, you know, it's not a donation request. This is really simply to call in. How you doing? In. Hey, yeah. How you doing? How are you doing? And is everything okay with you and your pets? Is there anything you need? Is there anything we can, uh, any resource we can direct you to or help you with? That in itself was transformative for our team and also for our members, who's a, you know, holy mackerel. This really is astonishing. So there was really thinking out of the box. And again, Extending the whole ethic of the organization yeah. to walk the walk. Some person in England developed this concept of kindness cards where they would you know, say, do you need any help? Well, we put those, we developed those for our action teams and they went around putting them in mailboxes in their communities letting them know that if they need help with their pets, if they need pet food, if they need a dog walked, if they need an animal taken to the vet and they're unable to because of uh, if they're in a vulnerable population and can't are concerned about getting out of the house, how can we help? And these weren't just that it was best friend staff. This is kind of an army of volunteers who are out there putting these things out to people and building that community base. So it really was a remarkable uh, and incredibly creative way of of doing all of these things. And every day was an idea that had percolated up, was bearing fruit, was being celebrated, and uh, was beginning to move the needle in a a new way. And so this kind of really dark cloud that had descended and this sense of gloom and doom, and that was just the pall that was over everything, began to lift pretty early on by virtue of the fact of these really creative ideas and and an understanding that, on the part of the staff that don't worry your job is not in jeopardy you're going to be okay so don't worry about that let's get on and figure out how do we do the work and do it in different ways
0: again it's just so inspiring and i'm thinking i'm thinking because uh, i'm talking to francis batista that i'm thinking italian renaissance painters and chiaroscuro you must have you must have the dark (laughs) to see the light (laughs) And, uh, and I'm not on anything. I'm just sipping herbal tea and I, and I got there on, all all, all on my own, all on my own, Francis, just to get there. So what do you think out of, out of this great story? And I have this. Idiotic grin on my face, listening to you because it is inspiring. It's in my DNA to love, to love all things. Best friends. Not that I'm biased, but I am. What do you think is going to stick now, Francis? If anything, and and, well, and of course another... it's going to evolve. We know that. So, but what do you think will
2: stick? One more thing about the past year, sure, and it'd be uh, you know really ridiculous to not include it because it's been such an important piece. Is the social justice issues. Black Lives Matter. And and the fact that, uh, you know, as you know, and as we've seen, you know, at the first No More Homeless Pets conference that we did in Virginia Beach, Virginia in 2001, one of the speakers got up and said, okay, anybody here who's not white, please raise your hand. And, you know, two hands went up. And that forever animal welfare has been a largely white middle-class activity. The idea that People of color don't love pets, are not interested in this, are not committed to it. Has just been such a blind spot. It speaks to the that kind of the elements of institutional racism that you're pretty much blind to unless you actually are obligated to confront it. If you were to look at the kind of the population of animal welfare, deduce from the the profile and racial composition of the participants. Well, these are the people who care about animals. That's changed dramatically in in, in recent years. But still, most low-income communities, black and white and uh, brown, are resource deserts, particularly in inner cities. You know, if you live in South L.A. and you need to go to a veterinarian, it's hard to get to a veterinarian. They're just not in your community. That's right. So that these economic, uh, almost default redlining of services provided to communities is that, you know, is known very well with regard to uh, all sorts of different services and businesses applies equally to those that support pet keeping and animal welfare. That is something that has always been, again, another thing that has been, we need to do this. We need to relate to this. This is, you know, here, if we're going to make Los Angeles or any city a, a no kill community, we need to relate to the entire community. Again, something that became more and more uh, functional in places like Los Angeles because of the, you know, that we're on the ground, we're doing the work, and we're sort of investing in things. But in a lot of communities, that is just a uh, again these resource deserts. Francis, can can
0: I ask you, Francis? Because I'm I'm thinking about I'm thinking back to all our experience together was from. Ninety-three in Los Angeles, was in Los Angeles, uh, a, a, a very diverse city. And, and many of the faces that I saw from the volunteers and the people that were just involved in general were fairly diverse. But was this an aha for you, for somebody who's really been in the trenches with this thing? Or do you think just kind of, it, this was an...
2: Uh, it, it wasn't it, so much an aha. It was, well, I mean, I mean, I have, uh, and we have promoted the idea of, look, um, we're doing a disservice to these communities because if you take the, the, well, look at Los Angeles and historical Los Angeles in terms of animal welfare and animal rescue. And it's particularly more with the, you know, uh, the private sector than the public sector because in, in the city government and municipalities and municipal sheltering, it's obviously there's a wide, a lot of diversity, a lot of people of color working in the shelters and in civil service of one sort or another. But if you look at the profile of what a typical animal rescue operation in Los Angeles looked like, and forever what it looked like was likely women between the ages of 25 and 50 uh, going into shelters in uh, black and brown communities in South LA, in East LA, removing animals from the shelter. And finding them homes over on the west on the side. West the side. Right. So that was the that was the model, and it did left nothing behind, and it didn't address the, any issues, it didn't address any problems, it didn't identify animal lovers and give them give them the resources and capabilities to be address the, those issues in their own community. It didn't address the you know some of the bottom line things that drive the homeless pet problem. So, for example, it was n- not. At all uncommon for people to look at a, 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 an adoption application and make a judgment on a name, make a judgment on the color of skin, or as opposed to uh, and, and try and make an, a snap assessment on the potential quality of life that was going to be in store for the animal that they wanted to adopt based on these very prejudicial assessments.
0: There was profiling happening.
2: It's profiling. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about it, the, the logic of that is really screwy. So when we opened up our Mission Hills uh, operation in Los Angeles that we took on operation of one of the city shelters that was in the North Valley and adjacent to Silmar and Mission Hills and Pacoima and those communities. I remember are that. Hispanic. Yeah, I remember. What the result of that was, especially when you drop the barriers to adoption uh, and say the only qualification for, you know, placing a pet really is, you know, is, or do you love, do you love, do you love your pets?
0: Love this animal. Uh, yeah.
2: yeah. And so, but then if you, you think through that, well, now, rather than someone in that community having to go being denied an adoption from uh, someone who can provide a pet that's already spayed or neutered, already has its shots, has uh, you know, a health record, has they have a relationship then with someone who can provide backup for them in training or care. They have a relationship with someone who can hook them up with veterinary services rather than someone who's a lot, I can't get, I can't adopt a dog from these guys. So let me go down to the local breeder, the guy down the street and who's going to be my, my, where am I going to get my shots? Well, the the guy who does dog fighting, he's, he he gets, he get my shots from him. Right. So what you, what the effect of that profiling was, was to box in these folks, animal lovers and deny them the relationship that they might otherwise have. And then also, compound the problem because now rather than having an animal that's already fixed, they have to overcome the hurdle of to be able to obey or neuter. Rather than having to get an animal that already has its shots, a health record, they are left in mystery and they may or may not be able to get their shots. So then all of that then just kind of multiplied and exacerbated the, the problem in these communities. And so you have what you have is a, a self self-reinforcing and self-perpetuating riding, cycle. Uh, yeah. Well, it's yeah. it's really an imposed cycle yeah. that says, Well, there you go. You see, they don't care for their animal. Mm-hmm. Look, they're all sick. Uh, they none of them are fixed. And it's such a it was so stupid and short-sighted. And when you work backwards from the actual results, so now what's happening is you have A engagement of people who are animal lovers. You empower people who are able to do more in their community. Animals that are fixed uh, and have and healthy are going into the community. And also the people in that community have uh, a place to go for resources and training or whatever they might need. And then they're also, by being located in that community, and hiring in that community, you have people who look like the community. So the whole thing, it was really kind of an interesting uh, take on all the things that are being discussed now. But it's something that really needs to happen much more.
0: And so what is that? So I was going to say, so you had, in a sense, this this uh, beta test with Mission Hills. You've got all this data. This has also proven itself, as you just described. Now we have this huge movement and finally conversations that are long overdue. How does Best Friends make sure that it is part of these conversations?
2: Well, uh, you know, we've engaged uh, folks that are working with us to expand outreach in those communities, but also a lot of it is to do with our own, uh, you know, you can look across your, you you don't have to have formal barriers to employment, but you look at your employment pool, and you say, well, how many African-Americans do we have? How many Hispanics do we have? How many, you know, whatever the, you name the category, you think, well, anybody can apply for a job. Well, yes, they can. But we understand that we really need to be much more proactive in recruiting and in making those jobs available and in pushing those jobs to those communities, because we need those folks in our work, not just To be politically correct or to fit a profile of employment and employment roster but to to achieve our mission to achieve our mission we have to be able to reach animal lovers in every community and we're not going to reach animal lovers in every community unless we have staff and, and volunteers and representatives from every
0: community. And, so, that, and that are reflective. So like so many other organizations now, Francis, you guys are holding up best friends is holding up the mirror and, and saying, let's look at ourselves. What does our roster look like? What is the diversity represented in this roster?
1: Exactly. And if,
0: I, if I'm a person of color and I walk in now, we're saying it's, it, this going forward, the the brick and mortars may look a bit different, whatever. But still, if I if we just use that as an example, I walk in and I see someone who looks like me, who is running that 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 facility, involved in that facility, engaged in that facility. Right right away, there's there's connective tissue
2: right there. Exactly, and and to, and to the credit of the again to the team and to Julie. This was in motion prior to the outbreak of the social justice movement in America with the killing of George Floyd. This was in motion prior to that, but it really uh, became an organization-wide discussion intentionally designed to bring out these concerns of our, our minority staff. And also, how do we be more proactive and how do we you know, forget the white guilt and all of the nonsense that you, you kind of almost have a, to go through a mandatory band of irrelevant nonsense and get down to the fact of what do we do? How do we do it? Who are we listening to? What voices are we hearing? How do we get more voices at the table? That was another component of the year that kind of was in the middle of all of this. So again, lots of airplanes being built in flight. <laughs> yep. When you asked me about the future, that's part of the future. So part of the future is really decentralizing this work and making it much more community-based. When you examine the the kind of the the profiles of the communities that are in greatest need across the country and you overlay that with maps of race and ethnicity you have a direct correlation between the communities in greatest need income and race and various other things. It's not surprising.
0: Do you anticipate having more of a presence in more diverse neighborhoods and a physical presence, Francis?
2: Well, yes, and I think that's what kind of is in motion now. And you know, in 2016, put a stake in the ground to lead the country to become no kill every every shelter, every city, every state by 2025. The first step on that was okay. Well. That's a nice, that's nice, but what's the actual nature of this thing we've just undertaken? What's the, what's this, how big is this bite we took off? How do we get there? And how do we get there and what's the nature of the problem? Right. And we, we found out that we didn't even know, there were no real hard data about actually how many shelters there were in the country, let alone how many animals were being killed, where and what kind. We started out by doing, literally calling every single county in the country, with staff and volunteers to get information and then built, and you can see this at bestfriends.org slash 2025. And you'll see uh, an interactive map, a data mapping thing there that gives the, the statistics of shelter admission, shelter deaths, what's going on in absolutely every shelter in the country, You just went through cursors and drilling down. That took about two years to kind of really build out. Uh, but it's, again, a remarkable tool. What that threw up and what that identified were, wow, here's some places. I didn't even know this was a place. I didn't know that this this was this little place in South Texas on the Rio Grande border was one of the worst shelters in the country. In that community, which is a largely Mexican, Mexican-American Mexican area, uh, where we've been doing these embed programs, we have staff, best friend staff go in and work in the shelters alongside of the local staff. We uh, had one of our team go in as a shelter director. That place was turned around completely because it was really almost more a matter of giving people permission to save lives as opposed to being stuck in these kind of old routines and limitations that have been imposed by years of failure and, and reduced expectations. So now you have these communities in Edinburgh and Harlingen and places like that that are shining. Uh, Santa Rosa, Florida, another place. Uh, we have somebody in Abilene, these areas of Texas. So we, we what we found out that was the uh, five states accounted for 50% of the killing of shelter pets. I'm
0: looking I'm looking at the graphic now California, Texas, North Carolina, Florida, Louisiana.
2: Yeah, and uh, Texas uh, Texas was the worst. California is the second worst. Now, California is the worst. Texas is the second worst. So then this is back to the thing, what's the problem? Well, the problem in California is mostly cats, and it's largely in Southern California and inland and Central Valley. Programs that you use And the targeting that you use in terms of how you design your work is very different from community to community. So what that data gave us was information about, okay, what is the problem and how do we harness and best utilize our resources to affect and impact this issue? Still answering your question about getting into communities of color. It all really depends on what's the nature of the problem. And in a lot of these communities, it is cats building out these community cat programs are really pretty straightforward. They require permission of the and buy-in from the local animal services agency. So that's the kind of work that's being done.
0: You're taking this, I think, very smart analytics driven approach. You've got the data now. What is the biggest hurdle? Is it money? Is it buy-in from local politicians? What would be the biggest hurdle or what is the biggest hurdle that you're facing right now?
2: Well, I mean, you can slice those up in a lot of different ways. Uh, money, obviously, resources. You know, the, the, the more you have, the more you can do. In terms of actually access to the to the problem on at a on the ground level, in in a lot of cases, it's local policy. Whether it's housing policy, breed bans, community cat friendly programs. So, for example, we've have videos of grown men crying. These are animal control officers who suddenly realized that they didn't have to kill cats that there was another way around this and they were literally in tears at the realization that they didn't have to kill cats anymore that their whole most of their time was spent rounding up and killing cats nobody wants to kill animals i mean you just have to sort of take dispel the thought that people you know get some kick out of killing homeless pets nobody does being able to give folks the tools to not kill pets to to fulfill their Expectation. But the thing was often that there was so much doubt uh, about it that, no, it's not going to happen. We've been doing this. We've tried, we've tried this, we've tried that. It's, it's just an unfortunate fact of life. And to see them change. And we, this has happened in places like Baltimore, in San Antonio, in Riverside, California, uh, Albuquerque. Just
0: from releasing them of the burden that they have been under, Francis? Well, they're, they're having this reaction, is what you're saying? Yeah, I'm re- yeah.
2: releasing them from that burden, but yeah. also giving them, demonstrating to them, contrary to their expectations, again, the public is more than happy to accept and support life saving programs, however they're designed. And if that means, hey, you know, you called in with a with uh, a problem about, you know, cats. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to trap those cats. We're going to spay and neuter them. We're also going to do a search of the community here. We're going to trap a bunch of other cats around here. And now we're going to manage their population. We're going to spay and neuter them. We're going to return them. Um, and if you need some help feeding or whatever, do whatever, we'll help you with that, too. So, um, and... Ninety percent of the time, that's absolutely fine. And what that was not expected by most animal control people, because all they ever dealt with was the complaint. So they only ever saw, you know, the the negative side of the relationship, and they didn't have the the resource or the opportunity to show and, and present the public with the other side of the picture. We'd go into these communities. We'd run it. We'd we'd put one, our staff in, hire people to run the program for. Uh, Either we do it as a mentorship basis or in a full-time embed basis. They're in there for three years, training people, building the the program, and then hand it back over to the city, and the numbers stay the same. They maintain that level of life-saving. It's really amazing.
0: And so this is a program that will get even more push now, or this is just one of the programs that's active for best friends? It sounds like a priority program because you're saying, hey, the problem here, it's CATS.
2: is, well, the problem is cats. I mean, that's the big problem across the country. So really advocating for cat and community cat program friendly regs locally uh, is what is uh, the issue here. So, you know, I mentioned that thing about Los Angeles. Back in 2009, Urban Wildlife sued the city for their TNR program, they're trap trap neuter. claiming that it was a violation of SEEK with the California Environmental Quality Act, which is normally something that, you know, if I'm going to build a, a chemical plant in Laguna Nigal, I have to kind of get a, you know, do an environmental study to demonstrate that I'm not going to, you know, contaminate the wetlands or whatever it might be. Right. The idea of taking a cat out of the environment, removing its reproductive organs and putting it back as somehow affecting the environment was, you know, lunacy. But the city argued the case very poorly. They, they, in fact, claimed that they didn't have a TNR program. But, and, and they didn't, in all, to all intents and purposes, have anything that they were actually doing. But they had a, almost a paper program on their website. The complainant just printed out the, the, the city's website, brought it to court, and the judge says, well, you got one. And did you, you need to have an Environmental Quality Act. You need to do a, an environmental impact study. So that languished for years. Now that's been taken care of. But through all that time in Los Angeles, we could not implement any of these types of programs. In fact, the city shelters were prohibited from even giving advice about feral cats or community cats or recommending someone to an organization that did take care of community cats. When we took on the operation at Mission Hills and were utilizing that building on a fee services rental arrangement, we couldn't uh, advise people on community cats. And we can even talk about Feral cats. We had developed a code word called "pink cats" in order to be able to have any. <laughs> and, and this got, is
0: this is just to avoid potential uh, litigious behavior by somebody, Francis. Just yeah, p- printing it off city, the website and poning it up and going, nope, look, you can't do this.
2: Yeah, and the city was um, the city was under an injunction. We would have been in violation of the city's contract if we did anything like that, and so the city couldn't do it. And so that just the fact that. Los Angeles became a no kill city last year, despite that is just miraculous because there was no public resource via the, the animal services uh, department to help people with community cats. And so the only thing they could do was get a trap, bring them in and they would be killed. The, the, The lunacy of that is that the numbers kept creeping up over the time of this, since this was in place. And what that meant was, well, then obviously there are more cats out in the environment, which means more of the urban wildlife that these folks were originally trying to protect have to be being killed because there are more cats. That's right. Because you're not, you're not allowing the only sensible management tool to be utilized. So it was a, an entirely self-inflicted wound. But now I th- hopefully we're through all that and there's going to be a new opportunities in the This coming year.
0: Now you say hopefully. Why? Why? Why is it hopefully?
2: I think they. They. It's you know everything takes a long time to, to percolate through because it'll be protested. They'll have another. You know they'll have to kind of deal with another complaint. The environmental impact study was completed. There was a uh, recommendation that was approved to approve community cat type programs, and that will in- inevitably be challenged but it, right now it 's all going it 's all go
0: and i 'm just curious Francis the challenge comes from someone who has what i mean what, what do they have to gain by challenging is, is-
2: you know there 's historically been this and you may have seen it with auto or the Smithsonian you know that Cats are the number one enemy of the songbirds of the the world. Right. You know, if the cats killed as many birds as they say, there would be no birds. And in fact, the biggest threat to birds is loss of habitat. Um, And the next biggest threat to birds is, you know, skyscraper window. Pesticides. How about pesticides? Well, pesticides, all of those things are hugely more impactful on birds than cats are. Cats do hunt, That's, you can't deny that. Cats you know, kill little critters, and nobody likes that. The historic methodology of dealing with cats in the community is to round them up and kill them. But cats are so prolific that you never get ahead of that curve. Right. The only way to actually manage cat populations is to allow cats to maintain their colony size and their population, and to fix them. Uh, new to them, right. Spay, new, spay or neuter right. them, so that they're not reproducing but they're occupying turf. And so they're not going to be replaced by breeding colonies. So eventually you reduce those colonies and you reduce the numbers of cats at large. If you don't do that, what you're doing is just inviting cats to be more and more productive because they, 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 fill the vacuum and you, then you get more cats at large who are untended, unfixed, if they're going to kill critters, they're going to kill critters. But you gotta. But th- you're just hurting yourself if you're trying to protect mice and rodents and uh, lizards and birds and you know small animals in the environment. You're hurting yourself if you think that the solution is to just kill cats. That is not the solution.
0: Now it seems logical. It seems once again data driven, and yet someone will be able to pony up an argument and will contest
2: what you're in saying. Indian. And I think when you get down to it and you really dive into some of this, you just get a lot of people who are, uh, what do they call it? realophobes or real something, some term like that, that means cat, people who are really phobic about cats. Oh, <laughs> really? there, is, there, is a, there is a category of psychological condition that really is just phobic about cats. When you get down to it, you realize that, well, if they were really interested in and because you do, you you meet people who are genuinely concerned about this problem, as we are. I mean, we're animal lovers. We don't right. want to see. And you have folks who have made a study of this and who are conservationists and wildlife folks who understand this and who support it. And then you have folks who are just really just. Off the deep end, hostile to cats.
0: I'm watching right now on PBS Francis uh, all all creatures great and small, James Harriet, the adaptation of James Harriet's book. And one of the vets says it's it's the animals that are easy; it's the people that are the problem.
2: <laughs> <Right>? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. That was and some... then also, we have studies on this as well. We have studies related to the efficacy of uh, community cat program, programs and TNR uh, in reducing at large populations of cats. And so it's, there's no question that this works. Uh, it's simply a matter of getting over the hump of the idea of this mindset that you know, killing things is a solution to anything.
0: Let me make an abrupt shift in gears. In your wildest imagination, from the time that you guys had the idea, and I've heard the stories, and maybe you can share a little bit of this with us, the genesis of Best Friends, to where
2: you- uh, we were standing somewhere and we were looking out at the white cliffs and the canyons and there was you know i think it might have been an all staff week and we had you know 500 people on angels landing having a celebration and he said to me did you ever imagine that it would come to this and i think and i'm I'm not i don't know that i can swear but i said f no (laughs) uh and uh that's that remains the same it's still a Boggling and uh, humbling perspective on things. I mean, we came here, uh, a group of us in 1984. Uh, there was no, it was raw land.
0: And here uh, is just in case, because in case people don't know, this is literally heaven on earth to me. Angel Canyon in Kanab, Utah, the the place that you found, right?
2: Yeah, it's now about probably about five thousand. At the time, it's about three thousand acres of uh, raw land in Southern Utah. It was certainly not in, in any place that you would locate if you were interested in adopting a lot of pets out to the public, but it was just this magical place. And, you know, we were like most pet rescuers and animal lovers to say, you know, gee, one day I wish I had a place where I could take all the animals and that kind of um, starry-eyed uh, idealized idea that you're gonna be able to save everything if you only had a, a big enough piece of land. Um, and so we were like the, you know, the dog that caught the car right. and acquired this land for incredibly ridiculous and easy price to get into at the time. And people thought we were crazy at that. So we bought, I think, 3,300 acres of land plus another 30,000 acres of BLM leases for 1.27 million. In
0: 1984.
2: 1984.
0: And the estimated value now?
2: Who knows, it's, it's priceless. But we you know and you know we had and we had trouble doing that. But we got into it for $5,000 down and a $50,000 balloon. And then, you know, we ran in the ground and we had to refinance. And we had it was a all, you know, whole other level of adventure. When we arrived here, we'd been doing animal rescue and shelter rescue for a number of years. We had 200 dogs and cats amongst a small group of us. And then one day, one of the dogs wound up in the local pound, which was a tin roof shed in a field, you know, somewhere down by the local airport. And it looked like something out of a World War II prisoner of war camp. Movie, you know, and once a week, a vet would come over from St. George, about sixty miles away, and and the animals that were in there would be just euthanized. One of our dogs wound up in there. Uh, One of my colleagues went down, found him, and was just shocked by what he saw, and brought back that information. And we said, "Look, anything we do has to be better than this. Even if we just, you know, put him in, you know, orange crates out in the under a tree here, and as long as we pay him some attention, they'll have more than they got there." So we went to the uh, I was delegated to go talk to the mayor and say, "Hey, mayor, you know, we—I acquired this land, and we'd like to do animal control." And he was watering his flowers in his front yard, and he had one of those kind of, you know, fan spray attachments on the end of his hose, was waving it back and forth. Looked at me and said, "Okay, like you know, we could have been making sausages." Right. <laughs> right. And really, we. What's no your name idea. again? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So what next? So um, come in and talk to the uh, the chief of police on Monday. So Faith, who was another uh, one of the founders, went in and spoke to him, and she became the de facto animal control officer for three counties. Uh, she never had an official job, but she, Kane County, Utah, Garfield County, Utah, and uh, Mojave County um, north of the north of the Colorado River in Arizona.
0: Was it a volunteer and, position at that point, Francis? Was it a, a paid? No, it
2: wasn't was it paid.
0: Yeah, oh, okay. So no. volunteering. It was. Okay.
2: And, you know, she would get called up every time there was, you know, a domestic case, dog at large, dog running down the street, guy arrested with uh, drugs in his car, dog, dogs and drugs in his car. Every situ- imaginable situation, Faith was called. So She was out day and night working with the police and on calls. And then the rest of us were kind of tied into different things. We started getting, you know, just public requests and complaints. And I remember one situation where somebody said, hey, I got some cats under the, my trailer here. Uh, I don't want to kill them, but I don't have much choice. You know, it's that kind of story. And so, OK, we'll be down. Sixty five cats later. Um, oh. we're, <laughs> some, know, so,
0: cat, some cats.
2: <laughs> and <laughs> so within a few years, we had 1, thousand and thirteen hundred and fifteen hundred cats, dogs and cats uh, here at the sanctuary. You know, it had really hit the fan. We were running out of money. It was totally hand to mouth. We'd used up all the resources that we had ever thought we would might need to kind of develop what we thought we were going to do, which we really didn't have much. We never really were much on planning anyway, but was all. And
0: this was how many years later, Francis? This was because you well, started in we 84? started
2: 84, and then by 1989, it really hit the family. We were in a situation where we had to say, we have to draw the line here. If we don't do something, we have to make this work. Or we, this is going to be a very, very bad news story. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, right, and it wasn't just that it was going to be a bad news story. I mean, right, that, that was just uh, code for you know these animals are at risk, and it's up to us to we're, save their. Life. You
0: guys were officially at DEFCON one. You were there exactly. Yeah. And so
2: that was when we all said, okay, well, we just have to set aside whatever we love doing and go out and raise money and leave. a skeleton team here and just go do it. And so that's how I and Silva and I wound up in Los Angeles doing fundraising. You know, what was amazing about Los Angeles and the work that we did there was that, you know, we went out there in 1991, started really doing tabling, you know, putting tables outside of markets, asking people for money, talking about no kill. The idea of no kill just blew people away. People would see a sign that we hung off this card table that said best friends, best friends, no kill animals. People run across this parking lot no kill. Wow. What does that mean? You know,
0: and you had that table and that sign in front of Erwan 1993. That's where I met you guys.
2: Exactly. And we did that for a long time. And the thing is that, you know, everybody eats. And so we met agents, directors, celebrities, people in the industry, people like yourself who are incredibly uh, skilled and capable and committed and willing to help. You know, we were there in. We arrived like penniless uh, with a $3 a day stipend for food. Is this true? Yeah. And we'd, you know, scrabble things together. We'd bring bag lunch and do whatever. But it was $3 to actually buy something. Were
0: you guys living um, in the I, Valley I, then, France? Where were you?
2: We were staying at a, a Holiday Inn Express in Panorama City.
0: Oh my gosh. And coming <laughs> and, and coming into, coming into, you You were in Santa Monica and West LA and well, right that, and,
2: and, and to begin with. In you know, Hollywood. That's where. We, somebody I, set us up. Uh, set us up in places like Glendale. We thought, boy, Los Angeles sucks. You know, there's nothing here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nothing against Glendale, folks. No, Glendale's it wasn't, an awesome
2: city. <laughs> no, absolutely nothing against Glendale. But it was kind of like you know, you know, it was like imagine the most desperate place in Glendale. She was sticking us in the worst possible. On Sundays, Sylvan and I would drive around and go, "Oh my God, look at that!
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why are we over here?"
2: Why are we? So then we discovered Mrs. Gooch's in places like that. Yep. The thing that was so amazing about Los Angeles was at, certainly at the time, and I think it probably still is, it's a city of hustlers. And I don't mean hustlers from the point of view of con men. I mean, you got to hustle. Uh, you have to recreate yourself all the time. You know, All these people in the industry, you were on a project, you're on a job. The job, the movie's completed. You need to find another job. Yeah, in a way, it was the the
0: original gig economy, right? I mean, the city city of freelancers. Yeah,
2: and so the idea of you know being and you had to be put yourself out there and extend yourself and be committed to things. And the fact that we were in that way, I think, resonated with people, and they kind of took us on in so many ways. So within we were there in ninety one. Two years later, we were doing Celebrity Benefit at Chateau Marmont, you know, and then we did the next one year after that, that you uh, stood out in a parking lot all day. On <laughs> That's at, right. at, Ch- <laughs> at Saddle Rock Ranch.
0: Um, <laughs> That's right. So,
2: and, and then, you know, we were. Parking
0: uh, lot. That was no parking lot. It was a field with four foot, five foot high grass that we were parking cars in. Ultimately, that was no parking lot.
2: Exactly, and then by two thousand, you were the celebrity wrangler wrangler at the Knitting Factory with Charlize Theron, Laura Dern, Deborah Messing, uh, Hilary Swank, Robert Culp. We had this amazing level of support from celebrities and the industry. Not about just this wasn't about you know just to be rubbing shoulders with people, but they amplified our voice. They got this message into Variety, into national magazines, into. Uh, onto television internationally. And that then helped build uh, the momentum of both the movement and the organization. So Los Angeles was incredibly important in that way.
0: Did you ever think after you reached that DEF CON one moment where you said, okay, we've got to go out to the four corners of the world here, raise money and make this thing work. Did you ever think, even though you were getting that momentum in LA, that maybe you did bite off more than you can chew, and it's too big a row to hoe?
2: You know, we used to sit outside, raise money, call in at the end of the day, let the the team here know what we how much money we'd raise. They had the checkbook for the Bank of America in LA. We'd make a deposit and they'd write a check to pay a bill. It was like that. Everything was kind of, you know, you had to be, extend your level of commitment and acceptance and kind of accommodation to the fact, I guess I may be here in a wheelchair at some point (laughs) on a walker. If that's what it takes, that's what it takes. So you just had to really extend your yourself and, and make that psychic room to accommodate whatever circumstance arose. And it was kind of a, you know, a lot of times it was kind a a bit harem scarum so many miraculous events one time 1991 we were about to run out of pet food here at the sanctuary it was literally a a do or die moment and we were down at the hughes market in malibu day before thanksgiving and silva meets this guy who says um, he's standing there watching listening to her talk and then he hands her a card and she can only read it says Calcan, he says, oh, she says, maybe you can help us with some food. And he said, well, that's what I was thinking. She says, she says, oh, but, you know, we get it by the semi and we're in Utah. He says, that's OK. We're international. Then when she got into the light, it says, uh, I'm not going to say the guy's name, but Calcan, president. A, a week later, we had eight semis of food at the sanctuary.
0: True story uh, again.
2: True story. And it was again one of these serendipitous things. They'd come out with this pet food called Waltham and they described it as a science scientifically developed diet. Anyway, they used science and they infringed on science diets.
0: Right. Hill's, and, Hillside diet, diet right? So yeah, they yeah. had
2: to dump all of it. The, they had warehouses of this stuff that they had to dump. And we had it in Salt Lake. We had it, it was like it, it's kept us going for the next year. So, you're, your, like, your
0: manna from heaven was Calcan mislabeled dog food.
2: It's actually Waltham, and it wasn't necessarily mislabeled. They got caught in the squeeze. Infringement, of a, of a dog yeah. Food they became great supporters and sponsored a number of our events. They paid for the work that we were doing out there, helping trying to get people to the vet during the riots, after the riots when things were kind of shut down. That was another. Cycle and then the, the earthquake when we created a, you know, we're out there trying to raise money for the animals. Uh, and people are saying, hey, you know, uh, there are riots going on. Uh, <laughs> and then the other was, well, you know, there's all this debris around. It was like this crazy. That was 94, uh, Northridge Quake. 94, yeah. Yep. And we got rolled out of bed and where we were staying. And then, you know, to go stand out in a parking lot, well, that check for the gas leaks. We create, we set up a lost and found pet hotline to support. People to help people relocate their animals that had been uh, displaced by the by the earthquake. Set up a phone tree and helpline and volunteers to help people navigate the system of where to how and where to get their pets, how to find their pets, how what the most likely location might be. If it's a cat, it's going to be you know look in your backyard. They're going to hide. If it's a dog. You're going to have to check the shelters for countywide and, you know, into neighboring counties.
0: And for, and for so, a little bit of context on this, Francis, where earlier you were talking about how with the pandemic, the technology in a, in a way really met the challenge. And we were able to do things that we could never really do, even just five years ago. Uh, the technology was affordable, scalable. You're talking 93, 94, setting up a phone tree, getting this communication. That was like I'm cranking up my car with a hand crank time when you think. Back, I mean, I'm thinking about the early, you know, I didn't even know what it was called the super adoption event, that first one that we worked, where we didn't even have radios. We go, hey, go tell Francis, we were like runners in World War I, running across this giant field, these parks, to get from one place to another and then try and find each other and communicate. This is how you and Silva were making these things happen. And this was in the earthquake. You set up a phone tree. You just said it like you just did it. But it couldn't have been easy.
2: Well, it wasn't, but it was, okay, how do we How do we help? How do we stay both relevant and also be, and contributive? And those super adoptions that we did, the first few that we did were really interesting and fun. And I remember the time, do you remember Vincent, the guy who was, he was a homeless person and, and Silva came up, there were a group of homeless men there, this African-American guy, Silva, and said, look, just so you know, we're going to be loading in a lot of stuff. We don't not, you don't need to move, but we just wanted to explain to you what we're going to be doing here. And this is when we were getting all of our equipment and tents and tables and everything. He said, well, can I help? And Silva said, sure. And, you know, Silva was kind of frantic with clipboards and this and that trying to organize where things went. We were much less organized than we ultimately got. On that first day after meeting this guy, he was obviously demonstrated as a reliability. In about 15 minutes, she handed him the clipboard and said, you organize it. <laughs> and so there was this homeless person. She was, she was, he was Silva's right-hand person. And he was kind of running all of these different people and things. It was really quite remarkable. Uh, and well, then, we helped, then we helped him get a job. And anyway,
0: you guys really redefined grassroots.
2: Totally. And he was a, a you know, a, a wonderful man. He just hit hard times, you know, and had some personal problems. You know, he'd been a, an army intelligence officer. He spoke German. He was a, uh, you know, he lost his shirt doing day trading. Uh, he was, you know, it was a lot of different things, but, and he had a drug problem, but it was, he was really, a really, really wonderful man. We were able to help him and, you know, made it a few steps up, sort of plateaued, but he got out of the, where he was at.
0: I think if nothing else, Francis, with these great stories and you guys rising to meet the challenge of... A global pandemic. We come out with two t-shirt ideas is what I'm feeling. And that's the nose in, nose out, and then best friends, 1984, 2021, no effing way. I think, uh, (laughs) I think maybe those, those ideas might have legs. I could go down the rabbit hole with you forever because these stories mean something to me. Hopefully they mean something to any of the folks that join us and listen in. I, I want to thank you for sharing them. And I want to thank you for for starting this uh, on a, I don't know if it was a whim, but group of friends that had maybe not the clearest vision and then pressed through incredible challenges and continue to do so, whether we talk about whether it's Earth earthquakes or hurricanes or riots or now the global pandemic. And having a team of now 800 diverse staff, sounds like it's about to get more diverse. I just want to say, job well done. But it's still going. It's, it's still going. going
2: and, the, and the folks we handed it off to are smarter, more capable, in so many ways, more creative than we were. I mean, we had a, a big, crazy idea. Uh, we You know, we had to kind of figure it out from the seat of our pants. It was scrappy and often failed. But right now we've got such an amazing team, I can't say enough about them
0: it's i can hear it in your voice and l- let me just ask you a quick thing and then and then i can let you go is it julie is the ceo now how many of the original founding group are still involved
2: a lot of us live at the sanctuary but you know a number have passed away about 13 of us are still active in the organization
0: out of how many in that original group in the founding oh, group
2: i think really probably Twenty odd.
0: That's pretty impressive. That's
2: still, still pretty odd.
0: <laughs> still pretty odd. And is it was Julie part of the original group?
2: No, Julie was employee number seventeen. She, Julie was on her way to law school at the University of Virginia. You know, came from a very connected uh, Utah family. Uh, was headed for you know a, a career in law, probably corporate or Washington law. One of her, she was on her way back from a, a farewell to freedom trip to Mexico with some friends. Uh, was kind of uh, grimy, dirty. Her friend insisted on swinging by the sanctuary because she was sponsoring a dog. Uh, Julie saw it, talked to a few people, got, caught the vision, and mm-hmm. was hooked, called her father and said, I'm not going to law school.
0: And will her father speak the words <laughs> best friends to this day? <laughs> well, sadly what? her
2: father passed away, but it was something she, he really had a hard time with. She's a whole other story and a really interesting person and an incredible leader.
0: Man, I always love hanging out with Francis. Just a great conversationalist, wonderful guy, wonderful heart, and a wonderful organization as you probably now know. If you ever get the chance to visit the sanctuary, you will be blown away, guaranteed. The first time I went there with my wife, more recently took our twins. It's just, it's truly, truly magical. And it is in the Gateway area, if you haven't been to Kanab. Small town, but gateway to Zion, Bryce, Grand Canyon, not too far away. Just really special, special country. And the new Best Friends Roadhouse Hotel, newly opened. 54 rooms, I want to say. And all this forethought for people, and their pets so just just a, a fantastic place fantastic experience great way to visit the sanctuary and experience what they've been able to do over all these years and through all these challenges i can't say enough good things about them but you can find out more for yourself by going to bestfriends.org and of course they appreciate any kind of support or donation but Really, I can't stress enough, if you get a chance to make that trip, you will not be disappointed. Fun, fun trivia fact, Angel Canyon is the scene, and Kanab in general, of many of the Westerns that Hollywood has made famous. And if you were a fan or know of the original Lone Ranger TV series, where the Lone Ranger's up on the cliff with Silver, does that opening sequence, it was shot there in the canyon. And yeah, it is that beautiful. Okay, I could go on and on, but I've already done too much talking. So thanks again for hanging out. I hope you enjoyed hanging with Francis and myself. We enjoyed having the conversation and I look forward to more with Francis. Until then, stay safe. And remember, you will find no bed of roses wherever you find fine podcasts. See you soon.
2: Bye.